Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So I've had a lot of requests from people saying, hey, Buck, I know I really want to invest in some stuff, but a lot of the guys you've got on the show have minimum requirements. They've got, you know, a requirement that you be an accredited investor. In other words, that you make $200,000 per year or... A, you know, you have a uh, net worth of a million dollars. These are things that are sort of restrictive. So I'm trying to make an effort to reach out to more of you. And it was actually pretty easy because there are some people who've actually been on the show already who are providing great opportunities. And one of them is George Newberry. George was on the show a couple years ago, and he was talking about American Home Preservation, which is a fund that I've mentioned on the show a number of times, and we're going to talk about it again today. But what we didn't know about George or what I didn't know about George last time was that he had a tremendous track record as a real estate investor and as a guy who basically was flipping great big apartment buildings and had become a multimillionaire at one point just doing that. His story is pretty remarkable and he documents it in a in a book called Burn Zones, which is actually an excellent book and I, I can't recommend it enough. And George also has offered to give our audience a free copy of that book. So there is a an opportunity to go to wealthformula.com and all you have to do is click on Burn Zones free book and that book will come to you in the mail. So I hope you enjoy the show. I also want to, again, remind you, download that special report on saving thousands of dollars in taxes Ask questions on Ask Buck because those are the types of things that help me understand which way to push this show and join the newsletter. When we come back, uh, you're going to hear from George Newberry. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the Wealth Formula Podcast, everybody. And today, as I mentioned, we have a very special guest, George Newberry. Now, George has actually been on this show before, and he is uh, he's a really interesting guy. And uh, if you read his book, Burn Zones, which we'll talk about today a little bit, I think you'll agree. But George, 
as I mentioned, has been on the show before, but before he was talking primarily about American Home Preservation, which is his company currently, which I've mentioned several times on the show before already. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But first, George, welcome. Thank you, Murr. I appreciate you having me on again. Yeah. So, you know, the thing about it was that when I first became an investor with American Home Preservation, it was after meeting you and talking to you. And I got, you know, I, I got your book later on, this uh, Burn Zones book, and I was like, wow, this there's a lot to this guy. And I wanted to share a little bit about your story with the audience. And so tell us a little bit about your journey, because you came from essentially from humble means. And before AHP, you had an incredible career as an apartment investor. Yes. Uh, so I st- I'm a high school dropout. And not in a bad way. I was simply an entrepreneur. I wanted to to start working and, and trying some of the ideas in my head. And uh, I went through a number of different businesses. Most of them were successful, but I kept moving moving on. And, and by 25, you know, I was working in the mortgage industry and I started, I bought my first apartment building, which was a four unit apartment complex in South Central Los Angeles. And I followed that up with a 16 unit and then a 19 unit and then a 60 unit. And then the biggest apartment complex I bought in Los Angeles was 298 units. And what I would do is I'd buy the most troubled projects, the ones, you know, in foreclosure and bankruptcy, high crime rates, uh, low collections, and I was very hands-on in turning them around. And, and uh, I, I had a great run. After I sold that 298 unit in Los Angeles, I kept, kept going. I started buying out of state. And uh, you know, eventually I bought one of the largest housing complexes in the country, which is uh, 1,100 units in Columbus, Ohio, which actually proved to be my undoing. Uh, but nevertheless, it was quite a, quite a journey, and I, I learned a lot. I lost a lot. I made a lot, but I also lost a lot. Uh, but it, it's kind of, uh, you know, set me on a different path, which is the one I'm on now and, and, and one that I'm also finding some contentment from. Let's go back to this uh, because we were talking about, uh, you know, this journey. So so I don't want to age it, George, but what, what year were uh-huh. we talking about here when you were doing this, uh, when you went from, you know, whatever, 16 units and the next thing you know, you're 298 units. What When was this? That was 1992 was when I bought my first piece of real estate, which was the four-unit building. And 1998 is when I bought the 298 unit. And by that time, I had over 500 units in Southern California, mostly smaller buildings in that one big 298 unit, and then the 60 unit, and then a bunch of like 16 units, 20 units, and stuff like that. And you were doing this with your own money, or were you raising money? No, I actually, so I was in my late mid to late twenties through this run and I lived at home. And so my, (laughs) (laughs) so my, my expenses were really low and, uh, and I was making, you know, I was, I, I started out in the mortgage business, but I actually started my own mortgage company. So I was making good money from that. And I was using the money I made to, uh, pile into these apartment buildings. Again, I, I, I drove a $2,000, uh, used car, you know, used car that I bought for $2,000. I lived you know, modestly, and mostly because I like to maximize the amount of money I could use to play. It was like playing Monopoly. Yeah, sure, and sure. I, it, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I'd drive down these streets and I own this building, I own that building, I own this building. It was kind of fun. And I would, you know, I'd get loans. I'd, I'd usually get, well, I ran a hard money company. So we actually, I, some of my investors would invest in loans that were on, on properties that I bought. And then I'd, I'd always put a, a decent down payment, which was basically the money that I, um, uh, you know, the money that I was earning. And uh, it, I usually the loans were for a year. Within a year, I turned the properties around. 
I refinanced with bank financing long term, low interest rates. It, it was a good, you know, it's kind of. They the weren't Fannie Freddie loans, though. There weren't non recourse loans or anything like that. No, they were. Uh, they were often bank loans, oftentimes recourse loans. I mean, when I was in LA, they were, uh, yeah, they're recourse loans. They, and, you know, the loans weren't huge. By the time I started going out of state, some of the the recourse loans were millions and millions of dollars. Wow. And, you know, you had a unique approach to these buildings. And when you say hands-on, I mean, you're, you're, you're literally living in these buildings. Is, isn't that correct? That is, and not in Los Angeles because I live right. at home. But right. when I went out of state, when I went out of state, I was um, everybody interpreted it as being very noble. Like, oh my, this guy who's actually made some money is living at you know, oftentimes these very troubled complexes, and it, and it was a demonstration of my commitment to the project and the community, and and that that was part of it. But the reality is, I was cheap, and I did, <laughs> and I. I was not going to spend money to stay at a hotel when I had all these vacancies at these buildings I was renovating. So I'd always have one fixed up, and I just fixed it up like anyone else's. And then I, you know, buy some modest furniture, and that's where I live. And usually I have my office, you know, in the you know management area. So I would uh, be right in the thick of things, and that's really how these things work. I, I took on the worst projects, you know, the ones where they're. Uh, <laughs> I think I told you the story about the one in. Uh, well, maybe I haven't. The one in um, Los Angeles is 298 units, which I bought for 850,000, which sounds like an absolute. It isn't. It was an absolute steal, and today it seems just ridiculous. 298 units downtown Los Angeles, 850,000. But the reason I could buy it so cheap was um, was this. In uh, about four or five years before, someone had bought that same property for four and a half million dollars, and but the property was in such bad shape that the owner was jailed by the Los Angeles Slum Housing Task Force. Hmm. And so he, he ended up selling it for $4 million. And uh, that gentleman also went to jail. So he sold it to the guy who I bought it from, and he bought it for $2 million. And he also ended up in jail. So and no, one wanted, <laughs> no one wanted to buy this building because it was – most people interpreted it as a sure ticket to jail. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am, starry-eyed, and I said, I can do this. And, uh, and I did it, and I made over a million dollars from the transaction. And it was, a, uh, it was after that, it, it was good and bad. It was good that it was successful. The bad news is I was, in my mind, I was absolutely convinced that no matter what chaotic building that I bought from someone else, everybody else could have failed. Big companies could have failed. And yet I would be the one to get it right. And I really believed it. And, and to some extent, it actually worked. I kept, then I started buying these, you know, really challenged buildings out of state. The first one was Kansas city, 233 units had a, had a eight murders in the prior year. Uh, and wow. you know, here I am, I come along and buy it and, and, turn it around and, and it did really well and and it was a it turned out to, it was a good location it, were it you big, living were you living in one of the units where they had drawn a body um <laughs> on the floor and just clean that up a little bit <laughs> yeah exactly no one else wanted to live in the unit so i couldn't right. get reference so i figured i'd live in it actually i'm kidding about that but, <laughs> but it was tough i had a building on the on the top story it was actually I mean, a building, a unit on the top story, and uh, it was—I f- I forget, like 13, 14 stories. It, it was fine. I'd take the elevator down. I'd have my office. So I'd be working, and then going upstairs to eat, go to sleep, and you know, do it again the next day. And 
you know, I, I just repeat that process. Once I got it turned around, then I'd move on to another building and just keep doing this until they were, uh, they were turned around. And then I'd, I'd, I'd move on to the next one. And literally, I mean, you're at this point and you're uh, maybe barely even 30 years old and you've made millions of dollars in real estate. That's a pretty amazing story. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that one in Kansas city. I mean, these are, these are the numbers, you know, I bought it for a million six. I think I put in about a million, uh, a little over a million. So maybe I was in it 3 million or so. And then, you know, Wells Fargo comes out and appraises it for $8.6 million, gives me a loan of $5 million. And I mean, just, I'm so, this is really, uh, an interesting, I mean, very rewarding, uh, because I, that turnaround took just over a year. So I'm saying, Hey, I mean, People always say, how do you find these deals? The reality is these deals, I mean, for your listeners, these deals are across the country, almost in every city. They may not be 298 units, 233 units, or 1,100 units, but they're smaller opportunities. It's these, the very, very challenged buildings. At some point, a bank or whoever owns it just can't deal with it. They have to sell it, and they just take a, a, a significantly reduced price because it's not something that they, especially if they're not local, they can't handle. And even if they are local, it still it takes a lot of work, and, and the right person has to buy it because they really have to go all in, uh, you know, not just financially, but but you know, their time, their their mind. You can't. These are projects that you can't farm out to a management company and say, hey, you know, here, make me a lot of money. It, it, they generally don't work out that way. Yeah. So then there was Columbus. And by this point, again, you know, you've made millions of dollars. Uh, you're unstoppable. You're, I don't know, by this time, maybe you're 30 years old. Who knows? Uh, uh, late 30s by then. Late 30s by the time you're in Columbus. Now, was this deal, was this also completely out of pocket, non-recourse, et cetera? Yeah. Actually, I was 30. It was 1992. So I was 30. Uh, I'm sorry, 2002. So I was probably 36 years old. Uh, this was, um, no, I, st- I had started to personally guarantee stuff as they got bigger and bigger. And there was, and I'll tell you, I did not hesitate for a second to personally guarantee anything. I was absolutely convinced that I was going to succeed in spite of, you know, what I was walking into. And, and typically I did. So I, when someone said, Hey, here's the financing, but you have to personally guarantee it, you know, I'd sign in and be done. Yeah. So what happened? Give us the, I don't want to spoil the story. Long yeah. story short in Columbus. So the first almost two years were wildly successful. I turned it around in spite of, you know, the naysayers. And this was a very high profile project was routinely in the news before I bought it. And then after I bought it and uh, we turned it around and it, it, it made the papers, made the TV and, and everyone was really surprised at the turnaround, but the property got hit by an ice storm and that ice storm proved my undoing, and, and it, it triggered a series of extraordinary events, which ended up with me 18 months later having lost not just Woodland Meadows, but everything. And not only that, I had $26 million in debt, which was mostly these personal guarantees. I, I you know, personal guaranteed bank loans, letters of credit, contractors, all this stuff. And so it, my life, what I had spent, you know, 12 year, 12 or more years building up was lost in 18 or so months. It was just an extraordinary situation. And, and then, then the interesting thing here and the thing to remember is that George never lost any investor money, but he lost a lot of his own money. But, and there's a big lesson in there, not only for apartment investing, but in entrepreneurship as well. And as a, a guy who owns a lot of businesses, 
myself. You know, one thing that, uh, George, I think you'll agree with me is that when a ship starts sinking, you don't really want to put more passengers on it, no, right? No. You want to figure out how you're going to save that. And if you can't save that, then, then, then you can't save that. But you can't start putting away all of your money and all of your other assets like you did. I mean, in, in, in some regards, it's a very noble thing. But we know now um, that that's probably something you wouldn't do if you had a chance to do that again. Yeah, yeah a lot of things I would have done differently. But yes, I mean, I ended up even, for instance, the first mortgage holder on a uh, on that particular property was Allstate Insurance. And they were kind of surprised, but I paid them back a hundred cents on the dollar. Took a little while, but they got all their money back. And they were so, I think, kind of surprised that despite (laughs) everything that happened, they got paid that the fund manager eventually, that's the reason I'm Chicago. He said, hey, you know, we should be, he retired from Allstate and said, hey, you know, I, I like what you're doing with American Homeowner Preservation. I'll be your partner if you move it to to Chicago and you know he was managing billions of dollars at Allstate so I said well this is a this is a good opportunity so I moved the operation to to Chicago and that was that's how I ended up here uh, from Cincinnati but that was uh, you know it's in in times of strife it was fascinating because he had a kind of a front row seat to the chaos right and he interpreted it you know hey this guy uh, did everything he could to make it right. And yet the city, I don't, again, I don't want to spoil the book, but you'll see that others had completely different interpretations, which were often uh, shared for their own benefit. So, you know, you, we have a lot of uh, investors and apartment investors listening to this show. And in some regards, you live the ultimate dream of the apartment investor, but then, but then all came crumbling down. If you had, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. what advice would you have for them? Just Give me one piece of golden advice that uh, they can take away from this. I mean, to really make huge money, you have to buy the the risky stuff. You have to buy, so it's what what are you after? You're after a modest return. Then then you can you can buy something that's fixed up that has has long term uh, history of performance, and you can project. It's predictable what the outcome is within some parameters. But if you really want to make huge money you take the big risks. And that's what I did. And, but you, you don't just say, Hey, I took a big risk. Now I'm going to make a lot of money. <laughs> you know, there's a reason it's a risk. If you really work hard, you can turn those risks. You can maximize the likelihood that those risks turn into successes. And if you take a big risk, I mean, you, you can make the opportunities are out there. You can make millions and millions and millions of dollars. I mean, I did it. I, I, I did it. And, and, and I could, I don't know if I could do it again. I was just about to say I could. I I, I know how to do it again. But you know, now I'm a little older. Yeah, I'm married. <laughs> it would be really tough. My, yeah. you know, hey, you know, we're moving into. <laughs> it, it wouldn't work today. <laughs> but at I, the time of my life, I was I was unmarried. It it was something that that really uh really worked. Unfortunately, I I'm you know really nothing but my experience and you know the book and whatnot to show for it. Financially, I have nothing to show for it. So you decide what you want and right. then you decide what kind of risk you want to take. But I mean, most people walk into real estate thinking I want to make a lot of money, but expect to to make a lot of money, you have to work really hard. So this book, Burn Zones, in my view, is a must read for apartment investors. And if you want a free copy actually mailed to you, go to wealthformula.com and click on the icon that says get your free copy of Burn Zones. Uh, You're going to need to include your mailing address so we can get that out to you. But George has very graciously offered to uh, deliver copies of his book 
to our listeners. And I'll tell you, you really, really need to read this book. So let's talk, George, a little bit about American home preservation now. Um, First of all, remind us, because you've been on the show before, but what is, in a nutshell, what does AHP, American Home Preservation, do? And how did you end up there from, you know, from the rubbles of everything else? So here's what we do. We purchase pools of defaulted mortgages from banks at big discounts. So these are considered the high-risk mortgages and people who haven't paid in a long time, they're in you know, modest communities. If the homes go vacant, there's a high risk of vandalism. So banks and hedge funds are often willing to sell these at huge discounts. And there are only so many buyers. So that's what we do. It's something I can, I can kind of do what I was doing before, but from behind a desk. And uh, you know, I have a team with me. We buy these and it, we contact the homeowners. If they want to stay, we'll share a big chunk of the discount with them. Because if we can get to a fast consensual solution, it's everyone wins. The opposite of that is something where we end up getting an attorney, they get an attorney, and we're duking it out in court for a year or two. That's the worst possible outcome. So we always try to come up with cooperative solutions. And we basically do what I wish my creditors had done to me. The creditors, when when a, a creditor, a bank or whatnot, who I owed a personal guarantee or some other type of debt after my chaos, those that came to me and said, hey, let's let's work out something that makes sense, that's what I could work with. But if you came to me and were saying, uh, hey, I need all, my, all the money, all now, I need all the late charges, all this, if I didn't have the money at the time, it's just something I couldn't do. And it, it's unrealistic. It sets an unrealistic goal. So we try to set realistic goals with the families whose, whose loans we now buy. And we probe to generate extraordinary returns by doing this. And we, so we, we accept investor money, uh, which is, is pooled together to buy these pools. And we've had quite a decent run here as well. We've uh, we bought bigger and bigger pools, raised more and more money, and now we're actually we're qualified by the Securities and Exchange Commission this May, May of 2016, to offer a Regulation A plus offering, which actually allows us to accept accredited and non-accredited investors. So it's new for for us to be able to accept non-accredited, and we've made the entry point very low. Uh, investors can can participate for as little as $100. So it's a pretty uh, inclusive opportunity. And the returns are, are pretty darn good. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We pay the first 12% to investors. So investors earn typically 12%. It's typically distributed each month on the 10th of each month. And uh, it, it's a good return. We, we've, you know, the funds for up to five years, we even offer early uh, liquidity options of Investors need their money back earlier, but that, that's what we offer. And yeah, so, so one of the things I really like about George's fund, uh, I like a lot of things about it. One, it is a what a, uh, unusual in that it's a socially, you know, it's, a, it, it, it's doing good in the world, right? You're buying these mortgages in bulk, you know, from people who can't, they can't keep their homes because they can't pay their mortgage. You're essentially keeping their home, but you're making a huge profit out of it. The other thing I like is I have um, on this show, you know, a lot of the people I talk to on this show who have funds have funds that are only really available to accredited investors. Now, this is an opportunity to potentially make, you know, 12% in a fund that does not require you to be a accredited investor. In fact, you can get in with even a couple hundred bucks. So there's really no excuse. Now you talk about the return, the first 12% go to the investor. In reality, how often do you not hit that 12%, George? 
We've never not hit it. And that, that's not to say now. That's not to say that at some point there's a uh, a cash flow. We make it clear that we'll distribute one percent a month on the investments, um, provided there's cash available. And historically, there has been. Now, as we scale this, it's plausible that there could be a month where the cash flow is insufficient to distribute the full twelve percent to investors, and we only distribute. 6%. But what would happen in that situation is whatever was unpaid would accrue and, and presumably the next month or some subsequent month when there is enough money, we would distribute it. But so far, we've never had that issue. But you know, just like Columbus, you can never say never. I think this is the good news is you know, we have no debt. It's just equity. So everybody's in there. And, and if there was a crisis in the financial markets, I think we'd be well prepared uh, to not only survive it, but to probably thrive in it. Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to say is that if you think about businesses and investments and funds, you know, that might do well. You know, everything goes south like a lot of people think it may in the next year or two. This is a fund that actually does better when times are worse. So that's the other thing I personally like about it. The reason I brought up the 12% that George is talking about, the first 12%, is I've been in George's fund mostly on, sometimes off, because, you know, it's a liquidity thing. Sometimes you can pull it out and do other things. In my in my case, sometimes I'm waiting for a deal, and I want to put money in, and I'll put it in George's fund and then pull it out. But George has never, not, never over the last three or four years that I've been investing with him, not paid me that 12%. So I just want to point that out. George, you know, in terms of the business itself, one of the things that I want to talk to you about, because you make it seem so easy, <laughs> Right. But it's really not that easy. Right. I mean, this is really being the what you're doing is in terms of the nuts and bolts is you're being a landlord again. Right. We're the mortgage company. So it is a little bit. E I mean, we're not responsible for the plumbing or or whatnot, but it is, you know, it's very real estate related. And, and uh, so there's a lot of similarities between, you know, managing apartments or any type of real estate and, and managing a portfolio of mortgages. Uh, so there, there definitely are some crossover um, issues. I mean, both issues, good and bad. So I have a lot of my experience has been helpful in really, really the bad experience has been helpful in knowing how to approach these families. You know, we buy these loans. Anytime, anybody who's worked on a modification for a friend or family member themselves will likely have the experience where they'll have to submit their paycheck stubs, tax returns, and all this to Bank of America, Wells Fargo, whoever it is. And then Bank of America, Wells Fargo will come back and say, hey, you know, based on what you've submitted, you can afford this amount of money. We don't do any of that. We, we make it very simple. We basically, based on whatever the value of the property is, we say, okay, this is a $50,000 home. Payment should be $500 a month. It's typically 1%. But remember, we bought that loan for probably $20,000. So there's, we're really making 24% or, or, or more typically. Here's the typical homeowner. They owe $100,000. The home is only worth $50,000. And we can buy that loan for fifteen dollars to $20,000. Now, in many cases, they haven't paid their mortgage for two, three, four, five years. So they owe ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, sometimes as much as our house, they owe simply in delinquent payments to bring the loan up to date. It's a situation that they just can't get out of. So we come along, we purchase the loan, and now they get a letter in the mail, and it says, okay, you haven't paid in three years, so you owe $30,000 in delinquent payments, but we will accept $2,000 
and we'll forgive the difference. Then your old payment was $800. We will drop it to $500 for the remaining term of the loan, 20 years or whatever remains on the loan. And then we'll drop your principal to $50,000 from 100. And so now we've made the mortgage. It makes a lot of sense for them to stay. And oftentimes that $500 that they're paying us is cheaper than they pay rent. So it makes a lot of sense. And, and one thing I want to emphasize is, you know, we do generate exceptional returns, but it's not off the homeowners. It's really the returns are made when we buy these loans from the bank. So sure. if, we, if we do, if we make a, get a great discount from the bank, that's what we're, uh, you know, and, and then we can share some of that with the families. That's where we make, we really make our money. You certainly don't ap- need to apologize for making profits on this show because <laughs> since it's a, that's what we're all about. But hey, George, what's the website again? Sure, it's ahpfundfund.com. And once again, everyone, if you want a free physical copy of George's book, Burn Zones, which really goes into detail, go to wealthformula.com, click on the icon. Uh, you'll see it's going to be pretty obvious. It'll say Burn Zones. We'll send you a copy of your home. George, thanks so much for being on my show today. I appreciate it, Murr. Thanks for having me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, George reflects what Wealth Formula is all about. He's doing well. He's helping others do well, and either by making money or, in his case, even helping them stay in their homes. And this, my friends, is a mentality called abundance, and we got to keep that mentality in this world and you will do very, very well. And with that said, this is Buck Joffrey again with the Wealth Formula Podcast, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.